listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. All right, I'm excited to to preach. We are we're actually uh, on the back half of our Beatitudes series. It just seems like it's gone super quick for me. But uh, today we're looking at Beatitude number six, and uh, we'll we'll look at that verse in just a moment. Had a wonderful time of worship here tonight, and I want us to continue in that mode of worship. Now we've worshiped the Lord in song and in prayer, and now in our listening to what the Spirit might speak to us. So let's, uh, let's pause and pray and just really gear our hearts to what the Lord might want to say to us tonight. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful for your work in my life and your, your work in the lives of the people in front of me. You are at work. The fact that we're here tonight tells me that the Spirit is at work. It doesn't matter if we see it or not or perceive it. God, you are moving. And there's something that caused each one of us to want to be here tonight. So thank you, Lord, that you're working. And I believe you're going to continue to work throughout this sermon, these next few moments. I pray, God, that every person here would just be open and humble to hear from you, whatever it is you might want to say. Thank you that you're a God who speaks and you're capable of communicating to us on a way we, we can understand so I pray that that would happen for each one of us, Lord, as we're hungry, as we press in, as we, as we just listen, as, as best we know how, we know that you're going to meet us where we are, and you're going to speak to us. So thank you, Lord, and we ask you to do that. We want to we right now just set aside these next few moments as a time to hear in a unique way from you together as a church body in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Beatitude number six. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Let's look at it together. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. To be a Christian, among other things, first of all, being a Christian means that we believe certain things to be true about God and about Jesus and the Holy Spirit. There are certain things that we believe, right? Now, there's a whole lot to being a Christian than just having the right beliefs. Absolutely. But it's never any less than that. There are certain things about Jesus that we, that we believe and confess. As Christians, we believe that Jesus is not just simply another religious guru among many. Jesus is not just some enlightened prophet or some wise teacher. He is those things. He, he, he is a wise teacher. He is an enlightened prophet, yes. Um, but we don't just believe that Jesus is a pristine moral example to follow. He's all of those things. But as Christians, we confess that Jesus is the eternal, unique, divine Son of God. Amen. He is God in the flesh, The word become flesh, as John puts it. That's where we get the word incarnation from. That's what we mean by the word incarnation. The word incarnation comes from two Latin words. The first Latin word is the word in, which means in. 
The second Latin word is carnis, which means flesh or meat. It's actually where we get the modern Spanish word carne from. If I go to a Mexican restaurant and I order chili con carne, I'm ordering chili with flesh, chili with meat. Jesus is God con carne. God in the flesh. And when, and when Jesus launches his ministry in the northern region of Galilee, and he begins teaching, and he begins healing people, and he begins driving out demons, setting people free from whatever's been keeping them bound as human beings, people start taking notice. Very early on in Jesus' ministry, the word about this man catches fire, and people start coming from all directions, miles around, and they're flocking to him by the thousands. And they want to catch a glimpse of him because they discern on some level that this is no ordinary person. He's doing miracles and healings, but he's even doing things that we've never even heard of anyone doing. He's calming storms. You know, this is something that even Elijah never did. Moses never did. Nobody has ever done before. Only Yahweh has authority over storms. He's, he's walking on water. Well, the psalmist says that Yahweh is the one who tramples on the waters. So people start discerning something is happening that's totally unique with this individual. And they were wondering who he was. They speculated about who he was. We read about that in the Gospels. They had different ideas about who Jesus might be in the role of Israel's prophetic destiny as the prophets foretold. They, they were speculating, but the one thing that almost all of them understood is whoever this man is, God is certainly with him. God is upon this man. God is working through this man. But not everyone was able to see it. Jesus' fiercest opponents during his ministry was a group called the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a religious political party in Israel because it was all the same thing. And the Pharisees were actually um, a movement that encompassed many different kinds of people. We, we, sometimes we watch like Jesus movies and Jesus films and we, and we think the Pharisees were these high and mighty religious guys, clergymen and, and, and cler uh, clerical robes and stuff. And, and I'm sure that there were some, some priests and such who were part of the Pharisee party, but actually the Pharisees were very much a blue-collar movement. Ordinary people could become Pharisees. And the Pharisees, just like almost all Jews at this time, they were waiting and hoping and longing for God to intervene on their behalf. You see, for hundreds of years, the Jewish people had been ruled over and dominated by foreign empires. You know, I've, I've been through this with you before, the, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, Persians, Syrians, and, and by the time of Jesus, now the Romans were in charge, and the Romans, in some ways, were the most vicious of all of them. They were very oppressive, very, they had a tendency to be rather cruel. And, and so the Jewish people in mass were longing for God to do something. The prophets had told them hundreds of years before, it's not going to always be like this. There's coming a time God's going to send help. In fact, Yahweh himself is going to come, Malachi tells us. 
Yahweh's going to come to his temple. He's going to set everything right. He's going to, he's going to vanquish you. He's going to set up this, this Davidic kingdom. There's going to be a, a, descendant, a descendant of David who's going to raise up. He will be king. And, and through this movement, Yahweh himself is going to rule over Israel, not just Israel, the whole earth. The whole earth is going to be covered with his glory, and everything's going to be made right. And so the Jewish people were enraptured with this vision, and for hundreds of years, this was their hope. They were waiting, they were hoping, they were longing, anticipating, when is God going to intervene like the prophets foretold? And the Pharisees had their own particular vision of what this would look like. You know, different groups, different parties had their own vision. Like, like you had the zealots who believed, let's all take up swords and let's, let's go to war. And that's how God's going to do this thing. But the Pharisees said, no, he's not going to do it that way. The Pharisees believed that what is going to trigger God to come and rescue us is if we as a people, the Israeli people, the Jews, if we will just be committed enough to purity, if we will just be devout enough and follow the law as closely as we can, if we can just be morally pure enough, somehow or another, that is going to provide the impetus for God to come and move. And so the big problem for Israel that the Pharisees saw was sin. Sin is what's keeping us from God coming. So if we can just get rid of sin, if we can just follow the law closely enough, boom, God's going to act. And so they saw it as their duty, their God-given duty to look into the lives of people and point out their sins and point out their faults. And they did it because they believed that they were honoring God. And this is who the Pharisees were. The, the irony is... When God concarne, God in the flesh, actually showed up right in front of their face, they fiercely opposed him. They could not see God in Jesus. And it wasn't just because they were trying to be knuckleheads. They legitimately couldn't see it. Yet here's a prostitute, here's a tax collector, here's a Samaritan woman, here's a Roman military officer, for crying out loud, and all of these kinds of people were able to look at Jesus and see somehow or another God is with this man. And yet, on the opposite end of the spectrum, you have the people who were highly regarded as being the most committed to God, the most devout, the most highly respected religious figures in Israel, and, and when they look at Jesus, they don't see God, they see a troublemaker, perhaps. They even see the devil. There's one, there's one point where they accuse Jesus of being at, in league with the devil. He's only able to do this because he's doing it by the power of Beelzebub, they say. Which, let me just tell you, as a good rule of thumb, anytime you confuse God with the devil, your theology's probably out of whack, right? They can't see God in Jesus, well, who is it that will see God according to the sixth beatitude? Let's look at it again. Let's look at the sixth beatitude again. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So our ability to see God, our ability to see the work of God has something to do with the purity of our hearts. Now, I want to show you this picture on this screen. 
I want you to imagine your, your life, your soul, your heart, your inner life as having a window, sort of like the one you see on the screen. Imagine your inner life as having a window. You know, I've heard throughout my life, the eye is the window of the soul, right? So imagine your soul is having a window. Windows do two things. First of all, windows allow light into the inside of a room so that you're not living in darkness. This would have been especially important, you know, before the age of electricity and and artificial lighting and all of that type of thing. So the primary way you would illuminate the inside of a house is you would open up the windows and allow light on the inside so you're not living in darkness. The second thing that a window does, though, is it allows you to see out so you can perceive properly what's around you. But if the window looks like this, if it's so caked over with grime and filth, then you're gonna be living in darkness and you're not gonna be able to see outside. And what I wanna show you in this sermon is that the filth and the grime that accumulates on the window of our soul is not just sin in general, it's a particular kind of sin. The sins of religious pride, hypocrisy, and judgmentalism. So I'm gonna show you this paraphrased version of this beatitude, just in league with this this image I've given you. Blessed are those who have a clean window into their soul, for they shall perceive God when and where others do not. Amen. Just keep that up there for a moment. Now, the Pharisees were, as I mentioned a moment ago, they were the most highly regarded religious figures in Israel. People looked at the Pharisees, they were impressed. They admired their outward righteousness. Outwardly, the the Pharisees were very, very impressive with their stringent application of their tradition and their stringent um, allegiance to the law and allowing the law to define the way they lived. But, But Jesus saved his most severe criticism and critique for the Pharisees. You know, there's one point where he uses very strong language. He says, you're like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, everything looks beautiful. It looks magnificent. But on the inside, in your inner life, you are filled with all manner of decay and corruption. His favorite adjective for the Pharisees was the word blind. Over and over again, he calls them blind. He says, you're the blind leading the blind. And you're both going to fall into the ditch. In Matthew 23, if you look at Matthew 23, Jesus just goes off on the Pharisees over and over again. He calls them uh, blind guides, blind fools, blind men, blind Pharisees. And then there's this interaction I want us to look at in John chapter 9. I think this is really interesting. So let me give you the, the backstory here. Right before Jesus says this, he heals a blind man a man who was born blind, he heals him, and Jesus makes the mistake of healing him on the Sabbath day. You're not supposed to heal on the Sabbath. Everybody knows that. You're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. And in our study on Wednesday nights, we've been looking through the Gospel of Mark. One of the things we're noticing is it's almost like Jesus purposely waits until it's Sabbath to heal someone. Like he loves it. He loves stirring the pot. He's like, oh, is it Sabbath? Let me go find some way to publicly heal somebody. And so Jesus heals a man who is blind on the Sabbath. And look at, you know, the Pharisees, they hear about it. They get all riled up. 
They say, no, 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 no. You violated the Sabbath. You've healed somebody on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to do that. Look how Jesus responds in verse 39. Jesus said, for judgment, I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Hold it there. So that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Notice that he's He's blending physical and spiritual blindness. He's contrasting the two, right? So in regards to this blind man, this literally physically blind man, I've come so that the blind may see. But those who claim they can see, who have pristine spiritual perception, my ministry is going to reveal that these folks are actually in blindness. That's what he's saying. And the Pharisees know what he's saying. They know exactly what he, he's talking about them because look how they respond in verse 40. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Let me explain. The recurring theme of Jesus is this, that the Pharisees are blind over and over again. What was their opinion of themselves? Just the opposite. The Pharisees felt like, you know what? We of all people in Israel, because of our moral accomplishments, because of our adherence to the law, we of all people, we're qualified to serve as the judges of our society. We're the ones above all people who are capable of looking into the lives of other people and pointing out their flaws, pointing out their sins, pointing out, pointing out their faults. We're the ones who are capable of doing that because of how well we can see. Jesus says it's just the opposite. The windows of your soul have become so caked over with the filth and the grime of religious pride that you are living in darkness and you are not even capable of looking out even though you can't even you can't even perceive that about yourself you're actually walking in blindness and i think one of the things jesus is saying here is that those people who were able to say well you know what i know this much i'm not capable of judging anybody because i've got my own blind spots i mean i'm, I'm basically spiritually blind so all I know is this, I don't have any business judging anybody else. Jesus says that's the one who's actually beginning to see. They're starting to see properly. So you see, it's counterintuitive. It's an inversion of values. Jesus is taking our, our assumptions and he's turning them upside down and inside out. That which keeps us in darkness is not just sin in general. I'll show you that in about five seconds. But that which keeps us in darkness is not just sin in general. Now, I'm not in favor of sin. I think we need to try to eradicate as much sin out of our lives as possible, all right? I don't want to make anybody mad tonight. I'm not for sin. But that which keeps us in spiritual darkness and blindness is not just sin in general. It's, it's a particular category of sin. It's the sins of religious pride and arrogance, hypocrisy that leads to judgmentalism. Let me show you this. I'll show you what I mean. First John chapter 1. I want to walk through these 10 verses, and we're going to stop. We're going to pause at a couple places, but I want to show you a few things here. Stick with me as best you can. First John chapter 1, verse 1. John says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, 
which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Who is he talking about? Jesus. He's saying, we experienced Jesus firsthand. We saw what he did. We saw who he was. It was tangible for us. We, we experienced it firsthand. And now we're proclaiming Jesus. And he says, the life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Now watch this, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. So, God is light, but listen. If you live in a darkened room with the windows all painted over with filth and grime, it doesn't matter how bright the light is. That light may illuminate everything else around you, but you're going to be living in darkness. You're going to be locked within your own spiritual perception. You're going to be locked within your own current perspective, and you're not going to be able to properly perceive what God is doing and where God is at work. Verse 6 and 7, look at this. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So hold on right there. Walking in darkness is not just walking in darkness of any kind. It's a particular kind of sin. The sin of self-deception. Of, of not being willing to acknowledge and see your sins. It's the sin of dishonesty. Because what does he say in verse 7? Look at verse 7. He says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And what happens? The blood of Jesus does what? purifies us from all sin. So walking in the light is not walking without sin. It's walking in honesty and transparency. Walking in the light is not being without sin. It's being honest and transparent about sin. I'll show you how it works. Let's look at the last piece here, verse 8 through 10. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And here's that word in the, in the sixth beatitude. And purify us, cateros, purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So here's what I want to say to you in a nutshell. Be careful about the sins of spiritual pride and hypocrisy and judgmentalism because that is what keeps us in darkness. And it keeps us from being able to perceive the work of God around us. You may have sin in your life, but if you don't commit that sin, there's at least going to be enough light for you to be capable of saying, you know what, I'm not even qualified to judge other people because I've got my own issues I need to work on. And Jesus says, that's when you're beginning to see. That's when your eyes are being opened. Because if the windows are, uh, of our heart are clean, 
We can perceive God at work in other people, in other places, in other churches. But if the windows of our soul are contaminated with religious pride and hypocrisy and judgmentalism, all we're going to see when we look at other people are their sins. Why? Because we're looking at them through a contaminated window. We're looking at them through a lens of filth. So all we're going to see is their filth and their flaws and their faults. And and it requires no keen spiritual perception to look at other people and see their flaws. Anybody can do that. It's when we look at other people, other places, other churches, when we can see God at work, when we can see the image of God upon people, when we can see the unsurpassable worth of every human being, no matter whatever else we do see, Jesus says, that's when we're beginning to see spiritually. Let me give you a a story in closing. I I shared a couple weeks ago the story of, uh, in my previous church in Louisiana, how we uh, started a ministry six years ago to men with addictions. And we started, you know, not to give you the, the whole story, I did that two weeks ago, but just, just in a nutshell, we didn't have any money in the bank, didn't have a, a name for this or a logo. We just felt God had put a dream in our heart to start this ministry for men with addictions. And, and so what it ended up looking like is, is we, we ended up taking in men, and it's a year-long program. They stay with us for an entire year, And through that entire year, we work with these men, we participate in their discipleship, we teach them how to walk with Jesus, and and for that entire year, you know, they're they're learning this, but they're also acquiring job skills and trades, so that by the time that they graduate in a year, every one of those men that graduates, if they stay with us that whole time, they have a living arrangement, and they also have a job in whatever field that they feel called to to be a part in. So by the time they graduate from our program, it's not just that they've gotten off of drugs, that the addiction's been severed, and that they've even become a Christian. Those things are also true. But also, we don't just kick them out on the street. We give them something. We we would give them a job and and a location um, to to live. So there's this beautiful program. Right now, I think they have like 45 men in this program. It's, It's an incredible ministry. But when we first started this ministry six years ago, we were trying to get the word out, trying to promote it, to let people know what we were doing. And so at one point, we, we participated in the filming of an informational video to help promote the ministry and get the word out. And so one of our young guys, I think he was like the fifth guy in our program, he was about to graduate, and he wanted to be a part of this video. So in this video, in this commercial, if you will, um, he sat down in front of a camera and just shared his story. And he talked about how just a little over a year before, his life was being controlled by this addiction. And and as a result of the addiction, he had lost his job. He had become estranged from his family and and ultimately found, uh, found himself confined in a jail cell. Hit rock bottom and he just cried out in desperation for help. And somehow or another, he heard about what we were doing and we got connected with him. And so we took him into our program and he stayed with us that entire year. And through that entire year, the trajectory of his life just totally changed. And on this video, if you were to watch this video, you could see how giddy he is and and how excited he is about his future. And he's talking about, you know, how there's restoration happening in his family and And he was so grateful for the mercy of God upon his life. 
And near the end of the video, he talks about how he, he was looking forward to spending the rest of his life helping other men who were in addiction, helping them uh, find Jesus as well and, and get freedom from their addiction. So it was just this beautiful video. We shot it. One of our team members edited the video, and then we put it on social media. Well, the video just becomes viral, and people start sharing it like crazy, and I don't know how many thousands of people viewed the video. It was just a great testimony, and man, the outpouring of support and encouragement and just, you know, things like, man, people saying, praise God, glory to God. It was just incredible to see people responding so positively to what had happened in this young man's life. Well, the support was nearly unanimous, but alas... There was one particular person who had an objection to make. There's a, there was a certain individual in our um, community who kind of fancied himself as this self-styled theological watchdog. He's the kind of guy who sees it as his job to look at other people, other churches, other ministers, and point out their flaws. That's his ministry. He's a, he's a fault finder theological watchdog. And of course, you know the trouble with watchdogs is that they can't really tell the difference between a thief and a mailman. Um, so he decides to respond to this video and point out what he believed was an apparent flaw in this young man's theology. Because as this young man in the video was sharing his story, he just neglected to use certain key words like repentance and blood of Jesus and the cross. He never said any of those terms. And so this watchdog decided that he needed to publicly, even though he didn't know the guy, never had a conversation with him, he felt like he needed to publicly draw attention to what he felt was a questionable salvation experience. Well, you know, here's the deal. First of all, the video itself was never meant to be a proper testimony. It was a promotional video to promote the ministry, to let people, to just spread awareness about the program. The, the young men in our program would have other opportunities to give a proper testimony, most notably at their baptism, right? But, but the second thing is this. This young man, to this day, has a vibrant walk with Jesus. The, the, the healing that's taken place in his life and his family has been incredible. And yes, he's still young in his faith. He's not as theologically astute as others. But the change that has happened in his life is ap absolutely remarkable to witness and be a part of. It was a privilege to be a part of that. And I'm just going to say this. There's so much more gospel hope in the change of life that this young man experienced and him sharing that story. There's so much more gospel hope in that than could ever be found in the smug judgmentalism of somebody who can properly define words like propitiation and atonement, but they can't see the work of God happening right in front of their eyes. The sixth beatitude teaches us that our capacity to see God at work has something to do with the purity of our hearts. If the window of our heart is clean, scrubbed clean from religious pride and arrogance and hypocrisy and judgmentalism, then we're going to be able to perceive God in other people. We're going to be able to see where God is working and cooperate with it. But as long as our hearts are polluted with pride and hypocrisy, 
all we're going to notice are their flaws and their sins. It requires no keen spiritual insight to look at other people and see their flaws. To use Jesus' term, any blind fool can do that. Spiritual sight is when you can look at other people, other places, other churches, and despite whatever else you see, you see God at work. You see the image of God that that person bears in their life. May our hearts become purged of spiritual pride so that we begin to see everything with fresh eyes. And all of God's creation becomes a beautiful panoramic vision of God's glory. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Amen? Stand with me this evening. And I want you to have your communion elements ready. If you don't have uh, a communion packet, would you raise your hand? Whether you're on the floor or on the balcony, somebody is going to bring some communion elements to you. And as you open up your packet, I want you to just close your eyes and meditate on the cross for just a moment. I want to draw your attention to this crucifixion story. There's a very interesting part of this story that Matthew records for us. He's the only one that records this part. But after Jesus had breathed his last, Matthew tells us there was this earthquake and there were some pretty marvelous things happened, happening. And um, standing right there next to the cross was a Roman centurion. You got to understand what a, what a Roman centurion was. He was a military commander. He was a hardened, battle-worn man who had seen a lot of blood in his life. This particular centurion, by virtue of his position, were able to assume, I believe, safely assume, that he was actually the one in charge of this crucifixion. It probably wasn't even his own only crucifixion that week. He had probably seen several that week supervising. He had probably supervised hundreds and hundreds of crucifixions. So this was just all in a day's work for him. This was his nine to five, watching a man tortured and bleed out. It's just his life. And yet there was something about Jesus and the way that he died that at the very end caused this battle-hardened man to say, surely this was the Son of God. A man who has pledged his allegiance to Caesar, to whom alone belonged the title Son of God. The only Son of God is Caesar in his mind, in his life, in his experience, in his culture. You pledge allegiance to Caesar as Son of God. And yet there's something about Jesus on the cross that captured his heart and captured his imagination. And despite all of the brutality of his life, despite all of the ugliness of his sin, he can't help but see the plain truth. Surely, this man is the Son of God. Blessed are the pure in heart. Holy Spirit, I just pray that you do a work in each one of us tonight as we partake of communion.
I pray no matter what, what's going on in our lives, I, there are people in our church right now, God, their lives are messed up. Their marriages are messed up. They got a lot of problems. We all do. We've all got problems. Every one of us. But Lord, you're not looking for perfect, pristine people. You're not looking for people who have been undamaged and untouched by life. You're just looking for people that are broken and humble enough to realize apart from God's mercy, I've got nothing to stand on. And I desperately need God. Those are the ones whose eyes are going to be open and they're going to be able to see you. So Lord, give us that sight. Just like you healed the blind man, heal us of our spiritual blindness. Heal us of the damage that our religious pride may, may have inflicted upon us. I pray that you open our eyes, humble us, and may we begin to see you at work in our neighbors and our coworkers and the people, God, that we define as our enemies. May we see the image of God May we see where you're working in our neighborhood, in our community, and be a part of it. And be Calvary-shaped people in this dark world so that the light of Jesus can shine. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.